Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 73, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. 73, bringing in 2023. So grateful you are tuning in. Life Podcast is proudly sponsored by IMAVL, also known as Independent Arts and Music of Asheville. IMAVL has been preserving and promoting the creative community in Asheville, North Carolina since 2012, gradually watching Asheville become one of the hottest music scenes in the country. IMAVL does all they can do to support those making noise in Asheville and archive history in the making. With live stream installations in several area venues, IMAVL streams shows six nights a week, often several shows on any given night, making Asheville, North Carolina the very first city in the world with its music scene aggregated into one channel. Over 3,500 concerts in the archives, national to local acts, there's so much to explore. Not that long ago, IMAVL streamed seven stages across four days straight for the first annual multi-venue AVL Fest. Based out of the world-class Echo Mountain Recording Studios, IMAVL produces an original series called The Echo Sessions. It's six seasons deep on PBS with artists from Eric Krasno to La Special, Billy Strings, Leftover Salmon, Marcus King, The Motet, and so many others. The streams are free to watch, a free service for the bands at each venue that IMAVL has production installed in. Now, IMAVL is a nonprofit, and fans can donate to their efforts to support the arts by heading to their website, imavl.com, or you can scan a QR code on a recent show from the IMAVL archive. This organization is passionate about the city they live in and its amazing musical community. They've built such a community in a little valley in the mountains, and then IMAVL does what they can do to support their friends and family and share the magic of Asheville, North Carolina with the world. IMAVL.com. Don't stay home without it. 
Shout out to my man Josh Blake and the whole IV, IMAVL team. We appreciate the support, the connection. Proud to be aligned with y'all. Before we go any further, I just want to shout out Cold-Blooded Designs. Coldblooddesigns.com. It's a brand new endeavor, and it's just basically all about funk. So they got gear, they got artwork, original art paintings, abstract stuff, really cool like molecule of funk, uh, designs, hats, t-shirts, all kinds of stuff. And I got to shout out my man Ian Neville. Uh, it's this is his vision this is his thing this is his side hustle and uh yeah i'm gonna get behind this shit because i'm all about the funk i'm all about new orleans and ian has always been a wonderful cat just warm and friendly and uh was one of the first locals down there to really like make me feel welcome so uh the least i can do is reciprocate and let my people know that there's some fresh gear on the scene cold-blooded designs and if you really want to be a player you get one of these pieces of art for the wall at the crib. Coldblooddesigns.com. Check it out. Yes, indeedy. Welcome back to the Up for Life podcast, episode 73. I want to thank everybody who's been tuning in, who's been supporting the pod online, offline, who's made this program part of your life. It means a whole lot. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to uh, continue to be a culture reporter and uh, share the stories of artists and people in the community and the music culture at large. And uh, I'm grateful. Um, I want to let everyone know that, per usual, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, and uh, if you have the time and are so inclined, please rate and or review the Upful Life podcast, preferably on Apple Podcasts, but any platform uh, really does a whole lot in sending those algorithms in this direction and bringing new listeners this way. Another thing you can do is just smash that subscribe button. So rate, review the pod, or just subscribe however you get this program. I really appreciate everyone who does that, and I super appreciate when I hear from the people, because I love to hear from the people. So feel free to send me an email, b.getz at upfullife.com. Try to get back to everybody the best I can. Suggestions, constructive criticisms, uh, reflections, anything you want to share with me about the show, I am, uh, yeah, just love that. And of course, 
you can uh, send me a couple of dollars for making you holla um, by just cruising to upfullife.com. At the top menu bar, there's a button that says support. So feel free to do that. That's a Venmo link. If you'd rather use something other than Venmo, just send me an email, b.gets at upfullife.com. I'm sure we can figure out a way to make that happen. But you don't have to send me money. You can just tune in. Uh, your attention economy is what's mo- most, va- most valuable to me. And uh, that's really what keeps me going. That's the battery in my back. Um, of course, upfullife.com is where you can find all things Begets, And it is the... Uh, year-end favorite records extravaganza a giant compendium i just put it out a couple days ago um and it's 23 records with reviews of course uh, another 23 recommended then a bunch of favorite songs and official live releases and dj sets and mixtapes it's got playlists it's got purchase links um, and you can support that too there are links to support inside the article upfullife.com that's where you'll find that. And uh, also a feature article I did on The Rumble, which is a great band out of New Orleans. The Rumble featuring Chief Joseph Boudreaux Jr. Uh, shout out to my man Ari Title, who was on this podcast a few months back. I know people really liked that episode. So it's coming full circle. And we're listening to Nubian Twist out of the UK. Great sort of jazz dance crew. The song is called So Me Stay. Nubian Twist. And now let's get into episode 73 of the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. And I won't come down. I just saw me stay. episode 73 of the Up Full Life podcast. I've had uh, the opportunity to work with Maria, creating a bio and doing a story on her for uh, her most recent record called Weightless, which we talk about quite a bit in this conversation, which was had at the end of the summer. I've held on to it a little bit. Um, wanted to get it in in 
2023. Uh, Maria is a singer-songwriter with a, a lengthy history, uh, long before I encountered her a couple years ago, a few years ago now, I suppose. Um, but she's uh, somebody who has been in the sort of festival community and folk music scenes out here on the West Coast. I've been aware of her for a long time, uh, kind of connected with her through Starling Arrow project she did with members of Rising Appalachia and Alienario, Tina Malia. Um, we talk about that. We talk about her different records, her journey to music, um, and her most recent really just stunning record which is on my favorites of the year it's called weightless you're hearing the title track to the record in the background um you can check out her bio on uh my bio of her on her website and also on upfullife.com and uh yeah i'll have some links in the show notes of how you can uh find out more about maria stark but you're gonna find out a whole lot right now episode 73 maria's in idaho when we're talking I'm here in my office in Oakland, and uh, yeah, we had a cool conversation. Here it comes. Stars dripping thick like honey from your heart. Your back light beating brightly in the night. All right, all right, all right. Well, it's early morning here in Oakland, and a little bit less early in Idaho, but I have the pleasure and privilege of speaking with Miss Maria Stark, who is a very unique and wonderful artist that I've had the, the pleasure of enjoying her music and working on some projects with her. And we decided we were going to do a podcast. So welcome to the Up for Life podcast, Maria Stark. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, the feelings are mutual. And, and when you say be here, we're not in the same place. So tell me a little bit about where I'm talking to you from and what you're up well, to. Well, I'm on my way to uh, Loman, Idaho, which contained my personal favorite hot springs that I've ever been to. Because Loman, Idaho is a place where within like a 40-minute drive, there are five, at least that I know of, natural thermal hot springs some of them in fact are hot springs waterfalls which means that there's hot boiling water flowing down the side of the mountain over a cliff that turns into a waterfall and gathers in little pools below before it goes into the freezing cold river and it's just outstanding and so we me and my partner have made it a, a an annual trip to come up here to enjoy the hot springs waterfalls of loman idaho Oh, you make it sound so amazing that I'm going to have to throw it at my partner. We love hot springs. She really loves hot springs. And we've been looking for like a cool adventure off the beaten path place that we wouldn't otherwise frequent. This checks a lot of those boxes, though. And if you vouch that it's your favorite and you're a hot springs expert and it's your number one, then I think we got to go. It's my number one for that I've been to so far in terms of natural hot, like out in the wild hot springs. It's just there's nothing like being out out in the wild and naturally formed hot springs that have that are so be they're so beautiful. I, I mean, I was stunned with the beauty last year. We came out here. And so, yeah, it makes me super happy to come. I love hot springs. I'm a hot springs fanat fan fanatic. The wild waters of the earth that are that come up boiling hot. And it's nice. I like it. Yeah, definitely. And and you've been a busy, you know, artist, person, human of late. You know, you have a pretty active career outside of music that works 
in concert with your music. And I want to get into that a little bit, but you've also been on the go a lot. And I understand you were just uh, down in Asheville for a big event, uh, debut annual festival called uh, Catalyst with your friends in Rising Appalachia. Could you tell us a little bit about your personal experience uh, traveling from the West Coast to Catalyst and what was the first festival like? Well, I, you know, I'm so impressed with the troop vibes that Rising Appalachia has generated in their community and in their team. And you could feel the love. That was my biggest takeaway. It's just like, oh, the love here of their crew coming together to throw down and have a really happy experience. And the venue was really sweet. It was very contained. It was right on the river. It was at the salvage station. And uh, it was a great location. And a lot of festivals, you know, just depending on the size, they have multiple stages, everything going on. I really like the size of this. There's one stage, one thing going on. They had great workshops during the day. It was hot. It was, it was summer in the South, you know, but, but there were, th- there were storms, Dirtwire played, Valerie June played, um, the Reminders played, and Starling Arrow played. Uh, me and the ladies of Starling Arrow, Elenario, Tina Malia, and of course, Rising Appalachia. And yeah, the festival overall was super sweet, really fun, just wholesome, multi-generational. It ended before midnight. You know, it's like these, for me, I I really appreciate this kind of down-home um, environment and, and it was lovely. And the last night, of course, was so beautiful because the, the closing set for Rising Appalachia set, they had this surprise giant light puppet show that came and took over the audience, which is... You know, I don't know what it is about puppet parades, but they make me cry sometimes. And I was ripe for the weeping at that moment. And it was, it came out and I was just a mess of joy. (laughs) I love that. I love those kind of cries to music, uh, especially in community. And I don't know, my wife sometimes chuckles at me because I, I'm quick to shed a tear when the, when the emotions run thick with music. So I love to hear that it grabbed you like that and that you let them flow because sometimes that's really freeing and liberating, especially I can't imagine what it's like for you. You're an artist and, you know, you sort of maybe have to comport yourself in some sort of way. So to just let, let the emotions come over you in the closing ceremony, it, it really speaks to the power uh, of that experience. And I sure hope that we, make it uh, out there next year and and uh, that you know listeners are intrigued and curious to hear about Starling Arrow about a lot of the other artists you mentioned that played uh, in addition to Rising Appalachia and you know I've been a fan of yours uh, from the outside looking in just knowing you moving around in the same music communities as me out here on the west coast Um, but it wasn't really till the Starling Arrow thing took shape that I really really got into what you're about as an artist. So um, let's talk about your journey, because I know that, you know, I found you in Northern California. From what I understand, though, you're from the desert, Arizona. That's that's where you kind of trace your roots. So tell me about the early days of Mario Stark, like uh, discovering your muse through music. Maybe what were some of the first artists you loved or maybe some of the first performing experiences that uh, something greater than you told you that this was your calling. Just take me back to the nascent embryonic Maria. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I have my first experience of like having, uh, or that I can really remember of having a wild 
multi-dimensional ecstatic state experience was when I was alone in a in a room with huge acoustics just singing at the top of my lungs like something came over me I was singing and and the echo and the bigness and the like wildiness I definitely felt like I was on ecstasy or I was I had I had hit some kind of state magical thing and ever since then I've, I mean, I always loved music and I was already always singing it, but like there was something that popped open in that moment. I was like, oh, this music thing is a portal to like God mind. Something else can happen with the with the sound and I can participate in that. And that was really powerful experience as a little kid to just feel that. And I grew up in choir, grew up in singing. I was always into it. I was always supported by my parents in um, seventh grade. I wasn't happy at the school it was that my mom found an art performing arts school that I went to and um and music and theater became my everyday experience um and I had some really amazing performance experiences than then like being in choir singing in huge cathedrals traveling all over the world singing in huge cathedrals I got to have as a 15 year old the experience of singing at um one of the amazing theaters in Phoenix the opium theater like a huge two or three thousand person venue for our school show where did the sound of music as an all school show and I got to play Maria in that show which is rad and so it was the first time actually being on a huge stage as a solo vocalist doing like Colin in the character and I, and it was amazing and I was like oh so I was like okay this is like really fun you know having like a choir backing me up with the orchestra down below and the dancers it was like a whole parade on that place I was like this is great I love this experience I could have more of these experiences in my life and at that point I had just started writing songs maybe around 13 14 15 I got a guitar when I was 16 I was playing piano a lot and like write figuring out songs that I loved like just became possessed with self-study of songs that I really loved I probably learned 100 or 200 of my favorite cover songs and just like really sunk my teeth in like what makes this good why do I like it what's interesting about the lyrics and studied the song forms and then taught myself to like cool I'm gonna just try a bunch of stuff as a songwriter just they started really tumbling out as a young person totally unprovoked it was very spontaneous and emergent um but then when I went to college I, I studied music therapy I went to Chapman University and they have a great music uh, uh, school there. And I knew about the music school. I went there to study vocal performance and be in their performance choir, which was a, an international touring choir uh, led by Bill Hall, who is this like famous choir director, is totally interesting cat, and like some really amazing opera teachers who I got to study with, Carol Neblich, who's fucking rad. Um, but I didn't like love opera. I wasn't trying to be an opera singer. And like there was more and I was writing songs. And I, I discovered at Chapman University in their uh, music school, they had a program for music therapy. And I took the intro to music therapy class my first semester. And I was sold. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing that I have ever learned about it was music it was uh it was the study of music in all cultures it was the study of music as a medium for connecting to what it make what's what it truly is to make as human beings and like learning all about the psyche and spirit and the body and like um music ethnicology like it was all everything it was all of it for me it was just the doorway and it was a, a, a place of study that I could explore myself as a writer and a, a songwriter through the lens of 
music therapy and sound healing and cu- culture building and community and he and and working in gr- small groups of people and so from there I was really like I feel like that set the tone for everything else I've been into since then I've just studied energetic medicine and mythology and spirituality and meditation but all of it kind of was centered around what got uh, initiated for me in that intro to music therapy class, which was working with a doula who was working with music at the beginning of life and at the end of life. So she was there working with the prenatal babies and moms and preparing the birth experience and then working with people while they were dying. And I was like, damn, like this is, it felt really to me like music as the shoehorn between dimensions. You know what I mean? And I, that was very exciting to me as a 18 year old philosophy, like, like this new philosophy of, of spirit and sound and vibration and like what human and humaning. And so, so yeah, it's spun out from there. That's the, those are the early days of Marmar. No, I love it. Uh, you really articulate things just beautifully and really engaging to hear you like uh, revisit that sort of wide-eyed wow of the music therapy curriculum at that really, you know, the world is your oyster, 18, 19 years old, leaving home, going to college, and then coupling that with your, you know, the musicology, like getting inside the songs and getting inside the characters, the protagonists, the way the music is constructed at that time, you know, like really, really early on uh, it speaks volumes. And so does the opera stuff, because, you know, I wouldn't put my finger on it, but I've always noticed you have this like very celestial, royal nature to your vocal, like whatever the song, you know, it, which is perfect for something like Starling Arrow, but really shines in the solo uh you know format um was there like a theme when you were growing up for young people to come together and share their music like outside of like school band or the traveling uh uh group that you worked with was there like uh you know off the beaten path on did you get together with people and play in the desert or open mics or stuff like that yeah you know there was a like when I got to Chapman, I mean, in, in, in high school, we had like, uh, at school, we had cafe nights quarterly. And so we'd go and share our songs there. So that's when I first started playing like my original music in front of my peers. Um, but then in college, uh, there was, yeah, there were open mics just in, in the town of orange. There were other open mics in Santa Ana. And I met like the whole kind of young singer songwriter community at Chapman and then also kind of the local area. Some of them I'm still friends with, you know, Lex Land, Jordan Moser, Witten was among one of those. These are like sweet songwriters that I met in that time and um, just love their music and learned from them. And we'd, we'd hang out every week without, you know, one, one of our houses, share new songs. And it was very active just to be in the like in the round regularly writing new songs having a crew to share them with and like learn from like what their influence is so different than mine and my style was definitely impacted by um hearing their songs and what they were into and what how they were going about it and then yeah the open mic circuit in the in the southern california area started getting more my feet wet playing songs in front of people playing new songs in front of people and and I just went from there from having my first show ever in Orange County um, or in, in the Ugly Mug, which was one of the open mic spots right by my college. That's where I had my first solo show that I invited people to, made flyers for and everything. That was super fun. 
And yeah, so you were playing original music that early, like you that show, for instance, you brought a yeah, bunch I think of your I was, own songs. Yeah, I think I was nineteen, and I did a like an hour and a half set of my own songs. Wow, that's truly impressive, and uh, again, shed some light to the the beginnings of your journey as an artist. So, at what point in time uh, did you pick up the guitar? Do you write the music on the guitar, and uh, would you say that that's your your instrument or do you have an instrument i i picked up the guitar at 16 my brother nick got me a guitar for my birthday and um that's when i started learning i started taking some lessons and um that became my, my like more of my instrument i had played the piano before then and i love the piano and i still if i had i still love to compose on the piano it's but i'm, I'm a stronger composer i think on the guitar i'm a stronger player on the guitar um and that I would I would call I would call the guitar my main instrument besides my voice. Although I, I do have a harp and I have been learning how to play the harp and the baron and the thumb piano and loop stations. Like I'm I like to get into other kind of instrumental plays. I've picked up little things on different instruments here and, and added them to compositions when I can because it's fun, you know. Like to you can you can make you can make a song out of anything. Uh, but I really started writing a lot more songs on the guitar. Once I bought it, that was my main avenue outlet for songwriting. Gotcha. Right on. And uh, let me talk to you a little bit about, you know, because you have a, a number of records and different projects and almost like different chapters of your journey. You know, one record sounds different than the next. And then that next one different than that. You've had different collaborators. I don't think we can go through every record, every collaborator, but. I do want to kind of like brick by brick the journey of of your releases building up to the most recent. Take me to your debut record. Like, uh, what was your situation making that, and and how has your process grown from from the debut? Yeah, well, I count the Garden as my debut album um, that was complete. Although I had some, I had like a live album before that that was my senior thesis which was The Fork in the Road, which was a concept album about like someone's journey through addiction recovery, which was actually a music therapy program that I ran for several years at um, addiction recovery centers in Santa Cruz. So that was my first like recorded, documented, shared pro record. Um, but my first studio album that got completed was The Garden. And I had recorded some demos at a friend's song. That demo got into the hand of Andy Zenzak in Santa Cruz. He he invited me for a free recording day to record the song Crossroads. And he and I really liked working together. And I loved being in a proper studio with someone who could just guide the process. And it had, was a, like ex, an excellent collaborator. I, I just really have learned so much from Andy about how to think about producing a record and that I feel like the garden was the place to just explore all of that and <laughs> have a great time and learn all, all kinds of stuff about string arrangements and how to arrange songs, you know, what, what's possible here. Shall dance to the rhythm of a trance Amidst the bounty of our thoughts And the fruits they bear do taste Of the passions we have sought By the fashions of our hands 
Um, and then I, I've worked on, I like worked on many projects in between then. I'd say I had like a, I, I learned how to work on in logic myself so that I could start doing kind of lighter collaborations. I worked on a kid's album that I released that was also kind of like a thesis project. I like kind of go back and forth between making art for myself and then like doing sort of like a ministry, like thought piece, like a project that's like about like documenting some kind of like songs I wrote for a curriculum. So I did that. I did like my, my kids album curriculum that was based in energetic medicine, the medical Qigong studies that I did. Then I worked with Carmen Gutierrez, Mama Crow, uh, for Scarlet Crow with Remembrance. Um, that was a combination of uh, six of my songs, six of her songs that was really steeped in exploring the divine feminine and the exploring kind of the, the history of, of, of for me, uh, witch burning times and kind of the like Magdalene laundries and some other like hidden shadows of the, the feminine. Um, her songs were really deep as well in a well of self-discovery and exploration of the psyche and also the like, you know, kind of old feminine lost oracle codes is what I, how I would define it. She might define it differently. How did, how did that collaboration come together? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, that's interesting. Like, how do you find Mama Crow uh, and how do you kind of come to the, to that project? What was the vision for it? And Yes, yeah, she and I had known each other for a long time when I first moved to the Bay Area and um, and had like played, sang, learned each other's songs, played on each other's songs um, for years in the festival community. And then um, we, I put on a show in Santa Cruz to release Unstoppable Joy, which was a single. And I invited her to dance at that show um, for Crossroads uh, as uh, the like, embodiment of that and then she asked you know she provoked actually hey do you want to go on a tour together um and explore some of the kind of that was the that show i had debuted hammer of witches and scarlet moon to the community and i had like created this like concert immersive kind of ritual experience and she wanted to take it further and do do some stuff together and, and unpack what, what her and I could do and what she could bring to the table. And so we created Scarlet Crow as a remember as the remembrance tour. And then we went down to LA and it kind of unfolded from there. And then we documented that the songs into remembrance. We had Yegon of Kali Scintilla um, co-produce and mix that album and and rode that wave for a while. Right on. Thank you. I just, you know, I was curious about that. And and that is slots in like after the garden and uh, after the Qigong for children, Crystal Kids. After the right? Qigong for Crystal Kids and then before Lineage. So that was the like pre preamble to Lineage. I'd say like Lineage um, was deeply informed from the circling that we were doing with our mentors at that time and unpacking those songs for me was a really powerful experience. I also did some training in storytelling and I went further in uh, deepening my own personal studies around womb work and, and womb healing and facilitation and circling and and had started being in a lot of group experiences with women who were wanting to open their voice. And I started writing songs uh to support that, you know, and the lineage, all the songs from lineage happened really set quickly. They got written very quickly within a few months, really 
um, working in the Yoniverse monologues with my friend Serena, who is a storyteller, working with women to unlock their voice and tell their story, like come out of the shadows of, of the story they were telling about their lives. And I was deeply informed. I was in that storytelling project and I un- we, like I moved through so much healing, you know, as a music therapist or as an expressive arts therapist, which I had been for many years, I had not been in an expressive arts therapy container where I wasn't a facilitator. And so to be in a, a facilitated process by one of my close allies and get to have the experience was like, holy shit, this is such deep medicine. And then all of these new songs came forward. Where I was like, okay, now all this music's coming forward and lineage got recorded very quickly and was really for for the women, you know, it was for the circles of women singing, sing, trying to open their voice and doing womb healing work. Again, it was another one of those like ministry albums. It was like, here's the album for the art that we did, like the soul craft magic. And like, here's the ministry album again, you know. And so this is the, that lineage came out. I like, it was like kind of quick and dirty. I did it very just like, I, I mean, I went into a deep retreat by myself for a week offline and I love working that way. And I just like recorded this all in one go. And then I had some friends sing on it afterwards and like mixed it, you know, quickly. And then it was out, you know, I didn't think a lot about it. I was like, this is going to be fine, but it's become my most popular album, which is, was surprised. I'm not surprised, but I wasn't anticipating it. I wasn't considering it because it's, you know, it was just something I was doing for the, to for the moment to respond to the ask of the community and there it was and i was like and those songs have really been a bedrock of my life's work since it came out which was is amazing again not it's not something i i planned for it kind of felt like it was always going to happen like when i was in college studying music therapy it was part of my thesis to do a whole body of work around women's shadow at that time, I was calling it the shadow feminine, but it, and, and now it's emerged as like, oh, it's women's womb work. It's like what's been sort of swept under the rug. Um, and so it was kind of, it was there in my original thesis statement as a 22-year-old. <laughs> like, I'm working with the women, you know, in this chapter, I'm going to do the kids, I'm going to do the women, I'm going to do the sound healing. Because in my thesis, I was like, oh, these are the communities. These are the kinds of musical rooms I want to build um, to respond to the different um kinds of things that i feel like i have musical medicine for and so well the women was one of them and i knew it was going to be a deep chapter scarlet crow is a big part of that chapter even even that chapter started before that with um with on the garden you know you have crossroads that song crossroads on the garden was kind of like the first song that started to like push itself out that was kind of leading the charge on that whole archetypal shadow feminine underworld journey and uh and it continues and it's still continuing i'm making an album right now that's con- the next iterate chapter of that journey and the bearing of these bones to the birthing waters where i find myself reborn i honor my lineage Anyway, there's lineage, and then lineage popped out, boom, and been riding that little lineage wave. And well, and then I made Sapphire with Joshua Penman of uh, Akara, who again, Akara was one of my favorite projects while it was alive. So good, good, good. Joshua and I became friends uh, just because he's a he's a 
he's a real music composer nerd and in a good way like he's an adept he's an he's a master a, a specific kind of um sound craft and melodic definition and like so, it's so beautiful what he does and how it, his mind thinks about music has really shaped how i think about music and he and i got into sapphire and this was this whole other madness and i was so i was so wholeheartedly just like dove right into sapphire to make this like opulent i wanted to make the sapphire world like the opulent kind of uh, avalon atlantis lemurian like remembrance of the deep sort of nectar of the soul like there was some deep soul nectar is trying to access this like unfuck with soul essence that was like outside of modern kind of like cranky crunch time and so i feel like that's probably the most celestial record because i really wanted to have a room that was just like blue velvet you know honey blue you know i was like i just wanted to like i feel like oh i know when i reflect on that, that album i'm just like man my adrenals were so tired i just wanted to spend three out like three years like hanging out in adrenal recovery like just to heal my kidneys <laughs> like that album was just to like try and heal my kidneys <laughs> from being exhausted on being on planet earth for so long um and sapphire came out during lockdown which was you know interesting timing it came out during the the like part of the weird dark black skies from the fires like it was really chaotic fire season when the album came out and so i had like an online listening party for the album my friend tess and instead of us going on tour i had tessa make like a whole visual album that was is just animated lyric video through the whole album and we presented that we made it for the release party and we had a group of whatever 100 people in the online listening party in our own little homes and everyone's like just like feel like in their little rooms in this listening party with sapphire while it's like bleeding like ghosty smoke death outside I see you from across the way I'm a storm chaser And it was just interesting timing. I was like, okay, well, this is like, it's a great remedy for the the chaos, you know, and it was, it was not what I wanted, but it felt like, okay, this medicine came at this time. This is what's happening. Here we are. And instead of going on tour, I went right into waitlist land, you know, like uh, I, the, the day after Sapphire came out, literally I went into the studio to start recording waitlist. That's the ride. Oh, but in between there, of course, we got a name. We made the album Cradle with the ladies of Starling Arrow, which that coming together was very um, unexpected. <laughs> it was just sort of, um, again, emergent response to what was happening. Uh, Tina and I met right before lockdown. We got together. We were teaching together and, 
and her and Leah were talking about like needing to like create a space for their own songwriting. Tina came to one of my songwriting classes and was like, can you help me? I want to write songs. And I was like, you should take one of my classes. She's like, I, I want, I think Leah wants to join. I was like, we should do a private. She's like, maybe Chloe wants to join. I'm like, okay. Aleph's caught wind of it. She's like, I want to be in there. I'm like, okay, we're all, we're doing this. And we started writing songs every single week during lockdown, just like in the round again, kind of like that thing you asked me back in college. It was the first time I'd been in the round like that in a while. And it felt really good to every week for over a year come and like write some random ass song about whatever kind of thing we came up with, just concocted all kinds of hilarious, deep research projects for our our songwriting to just have something to do and and it was a lifeline it was a lifeline during that time that time was so intense psychologically and that was like the saving grace of my whole life at that time and we made this album we didn't plan on it we were just going to write songs and have this like secret little like muse circle just like we're not this is for us it's not for the realm um, but the, you know, realms decide sometimes for you. And I feel like the songs we got together, the synergy was so beautiful. Like, okay, well, we'll, we'll document some of this and share it. And we did, we released Cradle in February. It was such a, just a joyful, beautiful ride. Um, also kind of just organic lightning in a bottle, just caught it real fast and actually singing with those girls at, at, uh, uh, Catalyst was so beautiful because that was only the third time the five of us had been together ever. The first time we came together was to finish recording the album. We started not the five of us. We finished recording the, the album together with the with the five of us. First time we were all together in person. And then we we got together last year once to make all the music videos in a week and have one, you know, show. And then one year later we're all five together again. We're playing at Catalyst. And so it's just been this like, yeah dreamy otherworldly thing and that's been such a gift to share that's that music which for me i think is also kind of like medicine light you know it's just like sweet you know and then we and then weightless has also been for me in this time of like light sweetness i'm working on like a couple albums of just like lightness because i feel like you know scarlet crow was deep and like mystic and like in in the trenches of the dark of the shadow and lineage sim same same it was like kind of in this like i was in this whole scarlet moon archetypal journey of recovering all of my like unconscious disowned feminine shells and sapphire was also deep and mythic but it was like deep and mythic in this like under like unconscious eros like in love with something i'm never gonna have kind of drama and I, you know i love drama i'm a theater nerd you know i'm i'm into the drama but it's been nice to be in a season of like no drama of just like we're making songs that are nourishing it's nice and weightless for me there's a little drama in weightless but like as an architecture 
of a concept to ride. It's a little lighter. It's sweeter. It's not like some big, one big mythic kind of realm to like sink my teeth into. Those are coming. I've, I feel like my teeth have gotten sharpened again and I'm ready for that after all this like sweetness. But um, anyway, that's a bit of my, <laughs> that's a bit of my album ride. Oh, I love it. And there's, you know, there's so much, first of all, you did a really wonderful job taking us through each of the waves and the chapters and the detours mm -hmm. and some of the collaborators and your mindset and, and your, you know, your physical space, your emotional quotient, as I like to say, as you created each of them. There's lots I want to ask, but uh, I'm just going to try to pick out a couple. Mm -hmm. um, as an artist, okay, so I was, you came onto my radar with Lineage. I think we talked about that off the air last time. That mm -hmm. was like the first time I heard your music, connected it to you as somebody that I recognized from sort of the West Coast festival, conscious communities, et cetera. Like I put your name with that body of work. Um, and you say that that's, uh, in essence, your most popular or m most well-known record, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. the outlier in the journey from like, you know, beginning with the garden and, and up through Sapphire. And I'm curious if, as an artist, when you see that people resonate with that sort of sidebar or that detour or that rabbit hole, are you inclined to pursue that further? Um, like you say, you're making something that's in essence the successor to lineage neck, right? Uh, is that are, is that are you driven by the muse, or are do you want to make something for your fans who have been waiting for the next lineage, or does that even enter your creative like headspace? I mean, I think about it. I have thought about it um, because again, I'm I make art both driven by my own kind of like I get sort of possessed by certain like curiosities <laughs> and that drives my process and there was a moment when um yeah lineage came out and it's like so out there and like more songs of that ilk have come just from being in circles with women singing songs you know so uh there is another collection of songs but funny you should ask this question um because I thought that I was going to record the next, whatever, the next chapter of that album. And I thought it was going to go a certain way. And then like the process of making that album has baked three separate projects because they weren't actually all it, like the, 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 the curiosity, which we'll call the like lead muse was trying to like link up with the like these other songs that were like kind of in the same river of chi but like not like defined and then this these other songs were coming in but they weren't quite there and so they actually like like forked into like three different projects i don't know if i'll get to the other two projects but the one of the projects i would say has like is informed by lineage but it's its own it's its own archetypal deep dive it's not and it's another concept album and it's not just circle songs to sing there's a few in there that they made it by the by the like skin of their shorts you know they barely made it in there and it was it's funny because I do there's a part of me that's like oh I want to have 
think like I have like my own desires of like, oh, I want to create this thing that's for the, this purpose. And then like some other thing takes over. Whereas like with lineage, I didn't think about it that way. I wasn't thinking about writing songs for women to sing. I was composing songs in the moment for women to sing. So I'm like, oh, I should document these. And then it happened. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this thing. The, the big me with the pen who makes all the decisions. Like it doesn't work like that. I'd say that whenever I try to do something like that, I, I, it fumbles into some like paradoxical clown world for a while. And then I'm frustrated and then the actual thing happens and I have to like sort of die to my ideas of that. I was going to be in control of something, you know, it's an interesting window into how songs get released. You know, they get created. They don't always see the light of day. The artist is navigating their own personal journey and where the music aligns. And maybe if a song had come out of you five years Sooner it might make the record, five years from now it might make the record, but in the here and now you're drawn to this and not that. Uh, it's just really, uh, you know, it's interesting. You're one of the most, I don't, I don't want to say like, if the word's like integrity or what, but the way you you follow your, your own creativity and your muse and you allow like self to just go there with the music and your collaborators, like not really dictated by industry norms or popularity or a, a yearning to get booked at a festival or, or all this sort of like normal for whatever reason like the industry stuff that drives artists that you know metric things that are little like uh voices in their head that guide their whether they like it or not i hear none of that from you it's not reflected in any of the music i told you how left field sapphire was for me but i'll go on the record to say that I'm most fond of Sapphire now that I've kind of had the whole mm -hmm. journey. Um, and I'm excited for Waitlist because I like the com companion album idea of, of the grandiose and heavy and overwhelming and then the sort of really stripped, raw, barren vulnerability like uh, yin mm -hmm. and yang. I'm, I'm excited to see what my own relationship will be to Waitlist. Uh, on the heels of Sapphire and your fans too. And then of course you're going to throw them another curveball and get back into the shadow work with the next album and, and, <laughs> and keep us on our toes. And I think that's a mark of a really, uh, you know, awesome artist, somebody that's driven by something other than industry norms or popularity or career, you know, but I, you know, don't get it twisted. I mean, your career is so much bigger than your recorded art. It's, it's, your teaching, it's your it's your community building, therapy. Um, I want to finish there. How do you see moving forward uh, your work with music therapy and doulas and beginning of life, end of life, and actually life itself while we're here, making the most of our ourselves, our creative muses, our partnerships, our time here. How do you see your work and your art continuing to move in concert? moving forward thanks for asking that it's a beautiful question um i feel like i'm in this stride right now of of like wanting to and i've been playing with this concept of building the temple of the muse right which is my my organization for for education but it's also the place where i'm hanging all my art on the walls you know and like i feel like each room in the temple of the muse uh has this like kind of luminary spirit of like music ma magic that wants to go in there and i i and it has a big it has a big uh, amphitheater too in the temple of muse and i I'm, I'm, i want to spend a lot of time in the amphitheater making weird fun 
joyful, griefful stories. Like I love deep, immersive experiences. I, I want to make as many albums as I can while I've got this wind in me to do it. So I feel like really part of my, that's a big part of the work right now for me is to really um, allow the things that are inside to be outside, <laughs> like to really allow it to have the completion and there's going to be, yeah, things. And I, I, you know, there's, there's those voices of being like, I'd love to have, it's always funny. I've always struggled with like not having congruence as an artist in terms of like having a defined sound or like thing because it doesn't it's not motivating to me except for like oh I can hire myself as a tour like now I can like really communicate with my audience or whatever that like idea like you get trained as an artist early on like this is how you brand yourself like I've always been a natural like I try that stuff on and it's just like silly you know it doesn't work it's not effective in that way but it what has been effective for me is just the joy of making art that's happening right now that I love and like having different moods and having and committing to them all the way and and they don't have to relate to the last mood except in your own my own inner mythology and they're all related in my own mythology but it doesn't that doesn't have to translate to the community it can just they can each serve their own purpose um outside of my identity with it and i'd say for my like bigger work of of hosting creating hosting spaces for just being a stand for people's creative creativity i feel like me being in my in my work as an artist is taking a stand that's living my purpose and then the spaces that i hold within songwriting workshops and my longer courses with women voice in my womb continues to be a space to support humans to remember and it's like a special kind of recovery and therapeutic process of just being incarnated in a weird ass realm with a lot of distraction and pain and creative creative process is a, a way to um, draw the nutrients out of that those suffering experiences and metabolize them assimilate them make something beautiful uh, have time to integrate and so I like hosting those spaces it feels natural to me I'll probably do them in ways that will keep going and I do see myself as a in my later life, yeah, working really a, a lot with the dying, I'd say that that's probably where I'll spend most of my my later life. Um, but for now, it feels like yeah, being being that music inspires me in the way of of being a bridge between worlds. I feel inspired to continue seeing what worlds want to come through now that can support both the grief and the and the celebration of being alive through the art through um, experiential immersions through inviting people to connect with their own delight through creative savoring and i'd say that that's the 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 center point of my work the center of gravity of my work is to is to ignite inspire full feeling savoring the delight of life and all its flavors and doing something with that. Oh, I'd love to come back to this dialogue down the road. Another couple records, hopefully not another quasi apocalypse, but you know, <laughs> just, just see the work in the world, the songs in the world and ourselves in it and revisit it. I mean, people come back on the pod all the time. So consider this an invitation down the road. So we can further unpack some of these ideas for a longer time and talk about more songs, more life, and all that good stuff. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy to talk with you about music. I really appreciate your curiosity and and in these conversations with music and artistry. It's wonderful. time in the making this one uh been meaning to get with this very special guest for some time but finally the stars aligned at our dear friend kelly's magical tea house just outside santa cruz it's called art and zen and uh that's where i finally connected with ren elizabeth formerly known as jillian ashley or jill trashley uh, of the Gnome Co. and the Murtales and the Village Witches Elixir Bar and one of my dearest friends on this rock. Uh, I met Ren, then Jill, over a decade ago and our relationship has ma- taken many turns and forms and evolutions and I have learned a great deal about life, about sustainability, about consumerism, about zero waste. Um, and so much more from not just her work, but just the way she moves through life. And uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to just be in her orbit. A little bit about Ren is she's an entrepreneur, a bioregional chef, a community herbalist with deep holistic knowledge in guiding conscious consumer experiences and also stewardship of, of lands and dynamic spaces. She founded the Gnome Collective in 2015. Uh, After realizing uh, there was a deep intrinsic need in her community for a more meaningful connection, uh, more conscious consumption, and more accessibility to self-care, over the past eight-plus years, uh, the Gnome Collective has successfully curated health and wellness services all over the place. Festivals, parties, installations, virtual, in-person. They facilitated herbal education and, of course, alcohol-free bar installations nationwide and internationally in Costa Rica, Canada, and the UK. Uh, Most recently, Ren refined her craft in elixir mixology, and she brought to market the Murtales, elixirs as mixers, which are uh, available on the non-alcoholic menus of select bars, breweries in the Asheville area, which is home base for the Gnome and for Ren Elizabeth. Um, So like I said, this is long overdue, long in the making, and uh, Ren has had just a remarkable effect on just the prism through which I see life and and how uh, I apply those those, uh, values and ideas that she was instrumental in in bringing to light for me and as I've come to know hundreds if not thousands of other people. So without any further ado, Ren Elizabeth of the Gnome Co. and the Murtales, the urban herbalist herself. Hello, 
All right, all right. Well, I am hanging out here in Moss Landing, just outside of Santa Cruz, at the lovely and beautiful and ornate Kelly Marie's very special tea house called Art and Zen here in Moss Landing outside of Santa Cruz. So first, before we start, thank you to Kelly Marie for hosting us in her lovely space. This is a long-awaited conversation. Uh, I feel like I say that often on episodes, but few of them are as long <laughs> or as awaited as this one. So welcome to the Up for Life podcast, my dear friend, Ren Elizabeth from The Gnome Co., The Mer Tales, and numerous other endeavors we're going to hear all about. Welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, B. Pleasure to be sipping tea here with you. Yeah, it really is. It's a pleasure to be here amongst dear friends, family at this point. And, uh, you know, we first came to know each other at a very special time in our lives and, and place at Spirit of Swanee, where I just recently returned. Uh, you joined us for our wedding a year ago. And in the meantime, I've been following your gallivanting around the globe basically at this point doing your thing making medicine soaking up culture teaching people better ways to move through life so i've always admired your work and your efforts and also you've had a remarkable effect on my own life and my consciousness so it's a pleasure and an honor to to speak with you hmm. so let's uh talk just a little bit about the here and now um you're coming through California on the heels of time spent in Arizona. I know that's a place that's come very dear to you. So what do you have going on there? Talk about your, your work there, the land, and the community that you've found and, and immersed yourself in. Sure. Oh, Arizona. She makes my heart sing. It's been an interesting journey getting to know a new ecology over the past five years that's as biodiverse and, and rich as the Sonoran landscape. You know, when we think of the desert, I think most people wonder, is there really food in the desert? Is there really anything going on? And there truly is, especially in this area. Um, I spend a lot of time between Tucson and Bisbee and the border of Mexico. You know, Mexico used to really reach farther north, so it's old Mexico, really. And I found my place there about five years ago studying rainwater catchment, earthworks, and really just learning how to work and move and coexist with water as an element and as a teacher in my permaculture practices. I would consider it one of my second homes, um, but as you know, I'm based in Asheville, North Carolina, in the Appalachian Mountains. And so I suppose on my polynodal uh, constellation of places that I live and I frequent, um, the Sonoran Desert has become um, a well-earned well place in my constellation. Right on. And what was the draw uh, that initially brought you there in terms of you know, food and medicine and community? Like, How did you find your way to that specific area and, and, and how is that unique to your work? Sure. Well, I actually, it's funny, um, you know, about five years ago, I saw a post that Brennan Blazer Bird had put um, out on the internet about his experience um, doing a permaculture course with the Watershed Management Group. And there was just something in my bones. As soon as I read his experience and what he was sharing, I just knew that I had to go. And so I went. So I made my way out to the desert that summer and took the course and immediately fell in love with the ecology. 
Um, soon after that, I had made some friends and I could just continued, just continued to travel there. Um, I had been living bicoastally at that point between California and North Carolina for many years. Um, but it just felt like it was time for a shift and I was really being called to the desert. Um, and so at this point, you know, I've really started to embed myself in the community there, um, really around um, self-care and um, people who are coming into conscious, like alcohol-free event spaces and really working on their self-work in a collective fashion and um, working and have befriended a lot of folks who are um, actually indigenous to the area. And so it's been a really beautiful experience to build this other level of community um, where not only am I fascinated with the ecology, but I'm fascinated with the people because it, it takes a certain type of skin to live in the desert. It can be a pretty rough place. So, yeah. Sounds awesome. And the reason I kind of started there, other than it being the kind of your most recent stop, is the one I'm least familiar with because mm. I've traveled and spent time with you in Costa Rica and know some of your teachers and peers there. Obviously, Swanee and Asheville, mm -hmm. we swim in some of the same circles. And of course, we both spend a lot of time together and separately in mm -hmm. the foothills of the Sierras, Nevada County, Grass Valley, etc. So I was curious, you, um, what's the word you use? Poly? Polynodal. Polynodal. Because <laughs> you were already pre-Arizona. Yeah. Polynodal. Yeah. And so to add a, a new spouse, if you will, to the yeah. harem of <laughs> locations that you call home, yeah. Um, you know, had me curious. And of course, you know, you, you first brushed, you know, with the desert when you started going to Burning Man. And I know that that was connected to your your art. And and that's kind of how I met you. Mm. Um, you were like, you know, getting involved in sustainability, permaculture through recycling, through waste management. But you were also making art uh, uh, influence and actually out of uh trash and and turning it into useful art or just cool things or something other than landfills so to you know those are some humble beginnings yet righteous intentions and now here we are over a decade later and you're doing all kinds of work that sprouted out of those nascent beginnings so i wanted to ask you even before i met you you already had like a, a thing for sustainability for permaculture even just internally before you started to learn and and build with teachers and elders so where does that come from where was your first sort mm. of like holy shit i want to do things different and mm. and where does that come from wow great question great lead up to that question um i've actually been thinking about that a lot today so this is great timing well my first festival i was 13 years old and my father, who raised me, he is an old time and bluegrass musician. And he took us all as a family, rented an RV, went to a bluegrass festival. I believe it was in Arcata, Florida. I grew up in Southwest Florida. And I remember walking around this campsite and just, you know, the festival in general. It was a very small family festival and people were playing music everywhere on and off stage. And I was just enamored because growing up in a household where instruments were being played pretty regularly by my father and having friends and picking circles out in the front yard, um, I grew to love and see music as, as nectar and a vital life force for me and in my practice and in my life. So to go to a festival for the first time as a young girl, um, I couldn't help but actually witness 
overflowing trash cans and a level of consumption that really shocked me. And I remember going back home and having so many questions and not really getting a lot of answers. Uh, when my mother and I were going through storage, like maybe a couple years ago, um, I found this drawing that I had made about my school, like with crayons. And I had been doing, I've been trying to like get my school to recycle as a response. Very young. And I just had questions. I'm like, why are we doing things this way? Like, what is our responsibility? What is our impact if we're choosing to gather? Is it conscious? Is it in alignment with our ethics? Do we have ethics around how we gather when it comes to what we're consuming? Or are we just unplugging from reality and we're not really concerned with how we're consuming and, and where those things go after the party is over? So that was really stemmed at a young age. I remember we had a recycling bin growing up, but we weren't using it. So I got my family to recycle. I don't think my efforts were really uh, successful at my school getting us to recycle, but I know that I pushed really hard. Um, and so that, you know, really brought me into another area of um, resourcefulness that I gleaned as a child, uh, which was growing up on job sites of houses being built. Uh, my father is a general contractor. My mother is still a real estate broker. And I have a lot of fond memories of dumpster diving as a child because we were constantly on job sites and their office space also butted up to another construction company that had gems in the desert or excuse me, in the dumpster. And so I was just, you know, trash picking since a very young age to have materials to make art and to just freeform multimedia you know, exploration as a child, which, you know, later brought me into my BFA at Florida State University. And I remember meeting you just as I was starting to finish up my BFA there. And I really brought that curiosity to, you could say the canvas, but for me, it was more sculpture and later installation art at Spirit of Swanee to really just get people to be as curious as I was about these things that we're consuming and what we're doing when we're done with them. A lot of the materials through college I was using were actually water bottles and grocery bags and a lot of refuse off of dance floors and in green rooms, as you know, um, really actually taking refuse from the stage and from the dance floor to turn that into art to get people to think about their time on the dance floor and in these gathering spaces. So, yeah, that was it makes sense because you're always ahead of the curve with a lot of the the sort of missions so when you think about recycling whether it was with your family or with your school or even in the early days with swanee you'd be met with indifference or even somewhat discouragement not for any sinister reasons other than the same reason you know I, we we're talking off air about me being defensive about stuff when i was younger because you just don't want to be told how it is or what to do and unfortunately certainly back then maybe even from a woman you know so you're you're yeah. up against that right but also it's 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 more important to, to frame it in a positive sense that you were early, that you had this innate understanding of alignment and, and also consumption with regards to substances and, and garbage. And that, all these years later, it's just a, it's major. It's, a, you know, mm -hmm. sustainability, reusable, everything has become, you know, normalized. And, and so you can kind of just know and understand that you were instrumental in even just planting some of those seeds early on and I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that um, 
the culture has evolved. Obviously, it's far mm-hmm. from perfect. Just the other day, we were at Halloween having this blissed out, amazing two-hour journey with Pretty Lights Live Band and walking away from the stage, the litter. Mm-hmm. It just it sucks all that dopamine and good energy <laughs> that you just like are on top of the world. You just dance yeah, with your like friends. It's like we're still here. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's very sobering. Yeah. And, and that's something, you know, we picked, I think it really hit me when we moved out west and we saw that mm-hmm. people are far more conscious yeah. and aware of that. And there's even a song that they play at the end of the night. So everybody mm-hmm. picks up their shit and like you tried to bring that back and you have successfully in some ways and other ways, you know, it's still a work in progress. But I think that consciousness it's important to acknowledge that you were a part of that um, as early as anyone in my sphere. Yeah. And, and you know, tip of the cap to you on that. Mm. And and same for the art scene. I just, you, you did the little detour to FSU when we met and I accompanied you back there a few times and you really had plugged into a super cool, cutty art scene there that, you know, really is not the type of stuff you see at every university and if you do, you really got to seek it out. So you did, and you were part of that too. Um, how did you uh, kind of make the leap from identifying uh, as primarily an artist, an activist, to, because I know you got involved with event production and you've worked for festivals, mm-hmm. and so I don't want to give that short shrift, but I do want to also focus on things that are your own. Mm-hmm. So how do you make the leap to entrepreneur, medicine maker Mm. from you know festival goer recycle activist burner Mm. i mean now you know you have several businesses and you travel around tending to them and 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 uh sourcing the materials yourself responsibly like where does that leap happen Mm. i think for me it comes back to the mycelial network of allies that i have because i've woven this um or you know, have, I have this constellation of places that I visit. And a lot of those places for many years were informed by the festivals that you and I have frequented. And so the invitation was there to come and clean the land and tend to the land during these events. And then my relationship grew with the land because I was, you know, at a festival sometimes for a week to sometimes three weeks, like at Burning Man. And so I really started to grow in with the land itself as a steward and also with the, I would say like the family of people that that tend to these gatherings as producers and production assistants and staff and volunteers. And it was through that that the invitation really came for me to, I think, take the next step into my truth and into my offerings for the community. I've always identified as a community herbalist, and what I mean by that is my focus has always been on really creating accessibility to self-care, specifically in social gathering spaces like events and festivals. And I just, I think I really just felt seen at a certain point where I started having producers ask me, hey, trash lady, you know, back then, you know, I was going by Jill Trashley and I was assisting Recycle Michael with um, a lot of event work um, up and down the West Coast. And I started to get the invitation to bring an elixir bar to festivals as an experiment, as a social impact project, long before this NA movement has trended. And that was, you know, we're entering our 10th year next spring with the Gnome Collective, which is the project that I founded and have been curating and Really, it was the invitation, I would say, and it was the recognition of the many festivals and many years that aside from 
my trash sorting, I was dosing people left and right with local honey, golden milk, tinctures. I just wanted to take care of my people because a lot of us were working in gig economy in our 20s. We didn't have health insurance. There was a lot of substances out in the field and whether or not you're partaking, it's, you know, food security and uh, water is huge, especially when you're living in more of a tent encampment and not in a home with all of the amenities that are typically available to you. And so working in the gig economy and really living event to event for many years, I just assumed that role really with no agenda. And with the invitation, I ended up putting together my first elixir bar in North Carolina by the invitation of Clayton Gar for Connection Festival because he actually didn't serve alcohol at his festival at all. And we had actually met at Lucidity, which is another festival that doesn't serve alcohol. And that request just became more um, prominent with people catching wind of what I was doing and really helping me make that shift from trash sorter and eco-educator into kind of swimming upstream to the bar, the watering hole, which is not what I expected to ever be stewarding. But man, has it been more effective getting people to really open up and really get that curiosity going and to really make some shifts in their life. You know, I mean, it's who would have thought it's better to go to a, a c- common watering hole than yeah. like sorting through shit and garbage. Yeah. No one, Shocker. no one wants to be told how to live better or where to put their thing at the end of a broken cycle, which yeah. is our waste system. But the, those shifts, not to interrupt, but those shifts sorting trash with you were so humbling and, <laughs> and educational. Yeah. The conversations that were had and oh, explaining yeah. what goes where and why and like, and just un, it makes you want to make less of it when you have to deal with it. True that. So anyway. to curate elixir bars Um, obviously we've watched that blossom Mm -hmm. just on my way down here I had a work call with my fellow podcaster Wes and he said who are you talking to down there I said oh my friend Ren you might have known her as Jill the gnome co he's like wait Sonic Bloom elixir bar I love that place (laughs) so to some people you're not the trash lady you're you're the elixir bar stewardess or Mm -hmm. barkeep if you will and uh, so yeah let's talk a little bit about that I know it was an uphill climb to, to get to the point where they were asking you to come and you weren't begging to vent. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? How did you navigate the, the resistance or the naivete? Hmm. Well, I feel like I had a somewhat similar experience to a degree with waste management. I feel like I've been somewhat of a pioneer species in a collective group of people <laughs> with common interests to really help kind of regenerate the new way or lay, you know, a few more cobblestones down to get us to the next phase of our 
of our growth as a community, really wanting to keep gathering, but to also be more socially responsible. I feel like I came into stewardship of the bar in a very similar way as what I was doing with waste management in that it wasn't trending yet. It trended later. And it was more of a spark or an idea of someone in power wanting to support that shift. But there wasn't always resources for it. And there wasn't always enthusiasm to be as forward facing. You know, I remember with working on composting operations and waste management with Envision Festival for many years that they were one of the first festivals to really let me go all the way on social media and to plaster signage all over the festival to really get it in people's faces. They even let us put the eco hub in the center of the village one year, which was like so radical because usually waste management is pushed off to the side. No one knows where we are and we really don't get the visibility or the exposure that we deserve for the work that we're doing and for that to be an educational interactive experience. So I feel like it was the vote of confidence. And in some ways, there there was some financial support that came through, but it was more so them loaning me the space to execute the idea and knowing that it wasn't going to be, you know, there wasn't going to be a high profit margin in the beginning because this was still a seed that we were planting and watering after my years of doing waste management. And I feel like it took some time to really get this movement off the ground because I look at the different elements of what it looks like to come into a bar, interact with your bartender, and receive a consumable and walk away. And what's been interesting about the Elixir Bar experience is that we've been able to create more of a destination location than being put in a vendor row. And so I think that's one of the differences that made this experience very unique is that you really had to seek us out. And if you found us, we were like one of your spots that you frequented. It was a hang. Yeah, you bring all your friends. We've you got- You just get to drink and bounce, you hang. Yeah, you hang. Like we curate a lounge, we've had tea lounges set up. We set up an apothecary um, at Lucidity. I was curating Plant Medicine Way for many years, which was not just the Elixir Bar, but it was a stage where we actually educated on plant medicine and herbalism. And we had a slew of very carefully curated uh, medicine people in the space. And so really, I feel like in the sense that this was becoming an enterprise for festivals, there was less pressure on us making money. But I also was very pushed into um, a place of having to be extra resourceful in order to pull this thing together. And I remember at a certain point at Lucidity, we were in a carport and we had some handmade tables and we had this beautiful setup. But I just remember being like, if I have to put up another carport or easy up, and if I lose one more piece or if that leg snaps, I'm over it. Like I'm an artist and I'm operating inside of the same thing that I have put in a dumpster time and time again, which is temporary structures that just are built with planned obsolescence. Like I'm sure anyone out there listening has had an issue, maybe like a love-hate relationship with your easy pop-up tent. <laughs> I know I sure have. And that's what really entered this, this intersection came about when I was introduced to Greg Fleischman, who's based out of Culver City in LA. Um, he's produced beautiful structures on Playa for many years. He goes out to Thailand to work with Wonderfruit. He's 
got amazing um, network of projects going on between Black Rock City and um, Fly Ranch, as well as a lot of installs in Los Angeles. And he and I got together and designed a state-of-the-art, zero-waste, beautiful 20 by 20 foot wooden structure that goes together like a puzzle. There's no hardware, there's no waste, you print it once. We've had a few pieces replaced at this point, but in general, it was like the dream. It's really what kept me going because it felt like in order to really make the shift in this endeavor of really bringing people into the watering hole, like I needed a more classy, fun, beautiful place that people wanted to sit for a while, talk to us, be enamored by the space and just feel this, really this nervous system regulation that I think comes from the structure that we designed together. And, And that he very graciously gifted the collective so that we could keep doing this. So that was a big turning point for me to really make it this serious gesture. And that's when it started turning into a business when I ended up having assets now that I needed to transport and store. And really this this movement was now being co-stewarded by not only me, but several people on the team that come from all over the country to really bring this to life. And it's been a beautiful thing to watch unfold. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. When I saw it at Sonic Bloom uh, last year, I was blown away at the aesthetics, the vibe, the energy. Um, your team, like everybody was so right for the situation. Um, and, and I think back to how much I loved the nascent version that you did with Sarah Wu at some, mm. at uh, eclipse where I got goop and Leland and to play mm-hmm. the back to back night. And that was like, that felt triumphant. And in retrospect, yep. the six year or five years between, uh, you learned a lot of lessons, made mm-hmm. a lot of connections, evolved. Yeah. One of the things that has changed is products. Like, uh, you know, you had an apothecary uh, at Eclipse and you had an elixir bar, but not everything was branded the gnome. There was no Myrtails yet. So as you pour us, uh, what's the appropriate nomenclature? I know mocktail is kind of frowned upon. What would you call it? What are you, what are you working with these days? Um, I call this a Myrtail. Myrtail. Yeah. Okay. This is a Myrtale. It is, it is the bridge between the cocktail and the mocktail. The, the fins go both ways. Cool. And tell us about this product, like how it came to be and, and you know, anything you want to tell the people about how you make it. Sure. Well, the one that I've just poured for you here is called the Exhalation Mojito. And I think you'll really enjoy this one based off of knowing what I know about your flavor profile and your interest in sweets. Yeah. It's great. What's in it? So bubbly and refreshing. All of the Myrtails are typically poured with a base of ice and club soda. And what I do is I create the concentrates mm. that go into the cup. And I have to say, it's been, it's been a wild ride coming into a curative space where I've really treated the apothecary like my canvas. And I've gotten to work with cacao and turmeric and many, many herbs coming from the different bioregions that a lot of these festivals were occurring at between the Sierra foothills, we've got the Sonoran Desert, Appalachia, and the jungles of Costa Rica. These are really some of the main places that I've started sourcing herbs from. There's a level of wildcrafted herbs that I go myself out into the field to gather, and that's a very spiritual experience for me. And then I also work with permaculture farms and 
um, organic herb farms to really source the rest of these herbs with with a lot of ethics behind it because you know organic farming makes up less than two percent of farming in North America, and when you think about that, less than two percent. Yeah. It's like, what is going into our food system and how can we call certain things medicine, you know, when they're being sprayed and the water and the livelihoods of the people. I mean, it's a full spectrum approach when you look at growing food and and growing herbs and then bringing that into the context of what medicine really is. And it's not just what's in your cup right now. It's the entire journey of what it took to get there. And so for me, my journey was traversing the terrain of my career and the evolution of going from the end of the waste stream all the way up to when the first seed is planted in the ground and really building that relationship with every step of the way. And that took many years. I mean, some of these formulas I've been working on for about 10 years, you know, I I started with my golden milk and I made that for the first pop-up we ever did with the gnome. And like I said, we're entering our our 10th year in April, which is just, it's amazing. And I think that really I turn to the community to really crowdsource what we need in these environments. And so I was curating products that were wonderfully formulated by many brands throughout the country that I really believe in. And I've created those relationships with those folks to really bring their medicine to life. And at the same time, I was playing around myself, you know, figuring it out. I was making infusions with tea and with herbs and syrups and really just like playing around to see what stuck, what landed and looking at the environments that we were gathering in, you know, like the jungle in Costa Rica has a completely different impact on the body than when we're at lucidity in the Santa Barbara Hills, you know, the Santa Ynez foothills and looking at that difference in ecology, you know, you can draw some nuances to what the body needs to feel supported, but then we can also look at more broad brushstrokes like hydration, digestion, stimulation, relaxation. And so I really wove a lot of those common themes into the Murtails over the course of several years before they ever became branded the Murtails. You know, I just was moving on this theme of elixirs as mixers and like, how can I really incorporate support on a systemic level for the body that really can marry the environment. And if we're in Costa Rica, like we should be sipping on herbs from Costa Rica, you know, same with these different areas that we, that we do our pop-ups in. And so I think it took, you know, it really took a long time to figure that out. And I can say that my energy was really focused on the gig economy event work, We're going from festival to festival. I come back to Asheville. I rest. I reset. And I started trickling some products into the local business network in Asheville with some friends that own businesses like breweries and restaurants. And they're like, what are you up to? Like, let's let's try this like mocktail thing in Asheville, you know, a city that's like overrun with so many options for libations. I mean, it's really what we've got going on there is beautiful. We have beautiful, clean drinking water and there's, you know, a lot of breweries, there's distilleries, but there really wasn't much in the non-alcoholic category. So simultaneously, I was starting to get some products out into the Asheville network, but I was really focused on events. And it's really been over the past few years that I've been able to redirect my energy back to refining my formulas and then coming out with this Murtails line to really encapsulate you know, the last better part of a decade out in the field and on the dance floor. 
Word. I love that. That was a great answer. And it kind of took us through all the different locations and chapters. And, I, you know, I know you, obviously, from, you know, aside from our personal connection, uh, festivaling. And I've been, you know, our first visit to, to Envision was together. And uh, you've you have an incredible and rewarding and reciprocal relationship with the festival and, and some really, you know, deep, important teachers and and pioneers and producers and and people that not only make Envision happen, but, you know, year-round uh, are stewards and, and contributors and community members in Costa Rica. But you also have that in Asheville, and I was developing it in the desert. I know you have a smaller but tightly knit group in Nevada City and Grass Valley. Many of them I also call friends. But Asheville is a heartbeat. And like I've known you as building your thing, the gnome, and everything that's blossomed out of that through festival world. Um, but what I understand just by following along with your your posting and your sharing is that you're you're developing a brick and mortar situation in Asheville, um, which you know is for a variety of reasons is quite different than you know a collapsible watering hole that is open for the better part of a week. Mm -hmm. and, and what really makes this complicated is uh, owning, operating, managing a brick and mortar place where you're serving consumables is usually the type of business that you need to be present for mm -hmm. almost all the time, mm -hmm. just because of the nature of the business. Yet, because of the nature of your work in a macro sense, medicine making, sourcing, traveling, multiple communities. Plus, you haven't given up on Festival World. You just distilled it to the most important <laughs> stuff. So how did you arrive at the idea of, of a brick and mortar? And how are you juggling uh, not just opening that, but now you know maintaining it uh, while still being out here, mm. spending time in Ohio, mm. Santa Cruz, Arizona, Mm. And now, obviously, you mentioned off-air, you have global aspirations around the corner. <laughs> How does it work? Well, let's start with, tell me about your spot in Asheville and the community, you know, supporting that. And and then the uh, the balancing act. Sure. Mm. Yeah, my, my wandering feet have really been remiss to open a brick and mortar for some time. And I feel like I really got my my fill over the past five years from being in collaboration with the Asheville Dispensary in West Asheville. Um, this other invitation came about from Jimmy, who is the founder and the steward of the Asheville Dispensary vision, which is to bridge cannabis with herbal medicine and to create a lounge and a space where people can feel comfortable to come in and to really like level the playing field and, and look at the marriage of how cannabis is a plant, just like many other plants, and that there's a synergy that can happen when you're really guided in a way to find you know what dosage works for you, what other plant allies are there, really what can come to what might be a root issue with an with a illness that you're having. And to do it in a space that really, I think, changes the energy around how we do look at cannabis. Like, you know, you and I have um, met and been with this plant ally extensively throughout our lives. And my experience in California has been totally different from my experience in North Carolina with the regulations and with the way in which this, this amazing, like, master plant has been brought to market. 
And so because I have a longstanding relationship with this medicine, you know, this collaboration has really proceeded and given me training wheels to even come in five years later to wanting to open up my own brick and mortar. And so we designed this concept where we could bring the gnome offerings that we keep on the road in the heart of West Asheville and have it be available every day through mindful consumption, through the cup, through hot and cold beverages ranging from throughout the Americas, um, and really just like creating a safe, sober space in Asheville for people to gather, whether you were traveling through or if this was your neighborhood joint. And so what that provided for me was the ability to help curate a brick and mortar. And I wasn't responsible for the day to day. You know, Jimmy really supported me in my artistry and in my curation of creating a space. And he and his team ran it. And I mean, that was a perfect marriage for me. You know, it, I wasn't just a distributor. I've been training and educating the staff over the years and really getting to play with this menu. You know, at this point, I've designed hundreds of menus for myself, and I've really actually helped and done consulting for other people around the country to open Elixir bars. And it's really been like a huge um, part of of my offering is like, how do we actually do this? And how do we normalize this in society when people are still like, do I tip for an elixir seeds? And so for us to have this marriage of hemp dispensary with herbal elixir bar, we've been able to find success in that. And so that's brought me into now launching our tasting room and our bottle shop at the site of where all the medicine is made, which is separate from that building. And this is also in West Asheville. It's a sweet brick building on a hill. So the transition of doing this collaboration and, and being able to stay on the road when I pleased and to bring my offerings to these other festivals, I really got to learn what it takes to run a brick and mortar. You know, what, what I would do, what I wouldn't do. Is this a viable option for me? Does this support my lifestyle? Or can I rest easy knowing that because of my network, I'm able to still have an offering like this in Asheville and not have to be necessarily there every single day? Like, how can I support from afar to really make this thing a success? And as of last week, we have opened a second Asheville dispensary in Jimmy's hometown in Chattanooga. The bar is gorgeous. And so at this point, there's now two Elixir bars that are really well curated with the lounge, with the hemp dispensary integration. And that is an amazing like place to be, I think, in this day and age, as we see a lot of places opening up around the country. And we've also just launched and opened our bottle shop and tasting room. And that is at the site of where my commercial kitchen is and where my office space is. And I couldn't do it without my team. You know, I've really been working diligently to expand my team to create a safe and inclusive work environment where the women who work with me are also medicine keepers and have their own aspirations. And in true Nomi fashion, um, you know, my goal with this project, aside from Murtails, but really like the, the umbrella, the foundation with the gnome, is to help cultivate collaborate and consume in a mindful way where we can all be in our raw self-expression. And so I'm so grateful to be able to work with local women and men, many people who've actually over the years moved to Asheville after working with us to really cultivate something special there. And I'm calling it brick, mortar, and pestle because you know I love a good play on words. <laughs> so yeah, we've been 
really playing around with intimate programming. We've had some dance parties out front. We have bottle shop hours now, and it's been really sweet to really cultivate this experience. And it's low key, you know, we're not open every day. The goal isn't to be accessible all the time because we have our projects that we work on as individuals. So, you know, we're open a few days a week, a few hours a day. And it's really easy, I think, in this fast paced world with all of this pressure and, you know, just there's so many things to do and so many places to be. I'm not trying to be in competition with other businesses locally, but I think establishing some, you know, exclusive hours, it really makes it a sweet treat if you can get by and see us, you know, catch a workshop, catch a live show. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will put the website in the show notes so you can check out Brick Mortar and Pestle, Pestle. and all <laughs> things the Gnome Co. and Murtails. Um, so yeah, that'll be clickable in there. I'm really stoked for you just hearing the huge plans that you have that are already underway, having been there for a lot of it and seen even more of it from afar and, uh, yeah, just a remarkable journey. Um, anything else you want to let people know while we have their attention? Hmm. What I'd like to imbue is continued curiosity. You know, I feel like when we come into these public and social gathering spaces, there's like this yearning for us to really connect with each other. And what I often find is that in that connection with other people, we're able to connect with ourselves. And so finding those allies in the plant community that can really support those interactions and better yet, even come home with you to be in your daily life. You know, I really encourage people to to look past, you know, what's been served to us in the mainstream around what we're consuming, because there is this beauty that happens when you're able to connect to the wild or you're able to connect with plants in your own front yard. And it really opens up a larger conversation. And so I feel like, you know, a big part of the work that we've been doing is really encouraging this like conscious consumption and conversation that's really steeped in tradition. And that really can go back to your own lineage or to where you're living in general. So be curious and, and look into what's growing around you and, and see what's been, who, who has been supporting you in these connection points that you have, you know, with friends and family when you're out on the town or in the comfort of your own home. Like really, how are you filling your cup? That's always been your catchphrase, conscious consumption steeped in tradition. It's never been more applicable than now. And for anybody out there that's listening that, that hears uh, mocktails and elixirs, let it be known, Ren and the Gnome do pour spirits from time to time at mm-hmm. festivals. And I think that the sort of us and them factor has been a mm-hmm. big turnoff. People are like, oh, I want to drink. I'm not going there. And people saying, oh, I, I don't want to drink. I'm not going there. And we can all consume consciously together. Uh, and, and occasionally with spirits, and that's always consciously poured and responsibly mm-hmm. sourced. And I think that that speaks to how much uh, not only the you've grown, but that the the festival culture has grown to a place where it can all happen in one space and responsibly, mm-hmm. uh, with you know conversation and community being the feature, not you know intoxication or yeah. the rage and totally. at the same time we're still dancing we're still talking yeah. we're still hanging out it's a yeah. beautiful thing so 
I think that's a good note for us to walk off on, A, because our friends are pulling up in the driveway. Um, I want to reiterate, this is an amazing space, thanks to Kelly Marie and the Art and Zen Tea House here in Moss Landing, just outside of Santa Cruz. If anybody is ever in the vicinity and wants a cool thing to do, a nice date, cup of tea with your homeboy or homegirl, this is the spot. And I'll just add one more um space in which to have your cup filled if you're making yourself uh, if you're taking yourself out for any festivals in the coming year 2024 we will be back at envision festival with village witches we're very excited about that we'll be offering our elixir bar as usual and we'll also be offering some really beautiful um, educational herbal experiences through the vip experience of envision and in addition to that, we're really excited to make it out to Texas for the eclipse that will be coming in hot this spring. So definitely, if you're on your way out to Texas for that, check us out. We'll be hanging out with the Permaculture Action Network, Placemakers Tea House, and we'll also be supporting an herbal first aid program to help with any little nicks and wounds and any issues that you might be having on site. Please come check us out. We'd love to fill your cup and nourish you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That Eclipse Festival looks dope. Um, I do want to also shout out Permaculture Action Network, Ryan Rising, dear friend to both of us, mm-hmm. uh, along with you, majorly responsible for a consciousness shift for me, and I know he's affected numerous other lives. We've gone to Permaculture Action Days that he's curated together, separately. Um, he does incredible work. He was one of the first non-music guests on this pod, um, and I continue to learn from and admire Ryan Rising. So shout out to Ryan mm-hmm. and the you, Permaculture Ryan. Action Network. And thank you, Ren Elizabeth, uh, the Gnome Co. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, job bless, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And a deep bow of gratitude to the lovely and talented Maria Stark for that insightful and illuminating conversation. And of course, the same to Ren Elizabeth. Such a deep dive, such a great chat. Um, probably the first of many that we do on the pod, uh, I hope, because uh, I really like what she brings to the pod. 
and to our lives. And I say the same about Maria Stark, uh, just getting into her catalog and her process and her, and her just, it's a, it's a wonderful thing and it's new topography for me in a lot of ways and just spread the wings further. And uh, with that, like we always do about this time, the Vibe Junkie Jam. Uh, and I'm going to play a track that Maria is featured on with a super homie of hers and somebody I'm very fond of myself, Robbie333. Uh, the song is called God Morning. It's from a couple years ago. It's a collaboration where Maria is featured on Robbie's track. So that's how we're going to go out. Um, you're hearing Sari Jordan out of New Orleans off her debut EP, I Sing to the Moon. The song is called Ceasefire. And uh, yeah, another one that's on my faves of the year feature on Up for Life. Be sure to check that out. And I'll tell you, and 2023, goodbye, job bless. I'll see you next time on the other side. Yes, indeedy. Instead of the heart first, then I get it. I'm not blind to the many sedatives that let us live in a state of perpetual eloquence. Remembering its contrast that brings weight to any message and its positive images that come to light after exposing negatives. Photograph it in sentences. So when I listen back, I can feel my future self talking in the present tense. It's in these moments of sweet connection that I let my faith rest in what I know has been a gift from the heaven sent. Hold a close remembrance, cause. Uh, Without it, I'd probably be on the path of a pessimist. So I give thanks today, give my best to give. My prayers that I contribute with love and a level of excellence. Would you really wanna go now? Go now. If you knew the way to show down. Would you really wanna go now? Go now. Just what you know now Would you really wanna go now? Go now If you knew the way to show down Would you really wanna go now? Go now If you knew just what you know now